maybe I will break my own rule and nonetheless stand here if, if I may. Uh, to keep it lively, I decided nonetheless to just improvise a lot with what some people call, and I hate it, my provocative spirit or whatever. Okay, first, the usual gratitude. I'm proud to be here, and especially, I must emphasize this, I'm proud to be here also in connection with Slovene ambassador, whom I appreciate, him, but not the Slovene foreign politics at this moment. I violently, brutally disagree with it, the way our foreign minister, I will not, since F words are prohibited here, I will not pronounce his name, the way he acts with all the dirty compromises about refugees, about Syriza and so on, that's not my politics. I also have some other problems with Slovene identity, like, I'm sorry, I don't drink wine. Uh, also, the Slovene national sport is skiing. Well, I have a problem with skiing. Listen, it's nonsense for me. What does it mean skiing? You climb up a mountain and then you come down. Isn't it better to stay down and to read a good book, I mean? <laughs> but uh, uh, nonetheless, I, there are things which I love in Slovenia. Some diplomats, philosophers, friends, and so on. It's, you know, like in the same way that even in the darkest times, and I'm not so tasteless as to compare today's Slovenia with Germany in the late 30s, but you know, when you can say even in the darkest times, there were people who gave you hope. Let's take, for example, one victim for me. You know, the great, I'm a fanatical Wagnerian, the great conductor Wilhelm Furtwängler. I always considered it a great injustice how whenever people mention oh, uh, classical music and uh, Nazism, they mention him. It's so unjust. Okay, he was a national conservative, but as Adorno, certainly not a right-winger, put it, you can feel in the way Furtwängler conducted and so on, a terrible effort to save what can be saved of great culture in a terrible time. So, uh, in the same way, not that I compare myself with it or whatever, but uh, in the same way, I think uh, we should fight for Europe, for European legacy today. As you pointed out very nicely, you know, I'm more and more suspicious about so-called anti-Eurocentrism or this standard accusation Eurocentrism. Why is this all of a sudden so fashionable? I have a very dark premonition. Precisely because, I'm sorry if I put it in these old-fashioned Marxist terms, because global capital, the way it functions today, no longer needs European enlightenment, uh, European democracy, and so on. It functions even better without it. You know, my friend Peter Sloterdijk, who is, of course, politically my opponent, but personally we are good friends, uh, he once made a wonderful obs observation. He asked a question to which person from our time will they be building monuments 50, 100 years in future? And his answer was Lee Kuan Yew. 
you know, the recently deceased, the founder of New Singapore. To cut a long story short, the guy who invented the so-called capitalism with Asian values. Forget about Asia, it is not, it's simply authoritarian capitalism. And isn't this the tendency today? Look at, for example, India, Modi, their prime minister. At the same time, the most brutal neoliberal politician that you can imagine, he said it openly. In China, the price of working force is a little bit too high. Our chance of India is to sell even more cheaply millions of our workers. At the same time, uh, 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 Hindu nationalist, and so on and so on. That's the, look at Turkey. It's exactly the same. Erdogan, the prime minister. It's not a joke what I will tell you now. You know, it was the slogan of his last electoral campaign. Not the, the old Christian aura at Labora, but uh, 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 pray and work, but, but shop and pray. It's a perfect formula. So I, I'm a little bit suspicious that, you know, it's so fashionable to be against Eurocentrism because, yes, still now, probably, yes, we were guilty of many things, whatever, imperialism, uh, cultural imperialism, but precisely now that we are on the losing side, we should be fighting for what is worth saving in European culture. And to provoke you, this will be my conclusion, but to give you what in sexual practice is called for lust. Uh, this is why, as a radical leftist, I even think we should redefine in our own way, of course, not in the uh, sense of European cultural conservatives, this unfortunate term of light culture. Light culture, for me, does not mean, oh, our European culture is superior, we should impose it. It means something much more refined. For me, this simple, pure idea of multiculturalism, in the sense of each group should have the full right to assert, to practice its identity, and all we need is a kind of an empty liberal legal state which guarantees legally the peace. It doesn't work. Why not? Because, as a Hegelian, I know it, and you should know it spontaneously, each culture is not only defined by what it is. What a culture is, is always mediated by what it is not, but by how it constructs, relates to different cultures. And that's for me the problem. The problem is that each culture not only relates to other culture, but normative contains a certain normative texture of how you deal with other cultures. And here problems explode, even at the level of what both of you introductory speakers were right to emphasize as this Charlie Hebdo problem and so on. Now to provoke you a little bit, that would be my beginning. Uh, uh, yes, we should be critical towards everything, reflect that European legacy, but I'm more and more tempted to say that we should also fully and shamelessly rehabilitate a certain brutal dogmatism. Dogmatism in a good sense of the term. Now, 
immediately give me half a minute after I explain it you will agree I think look let's take rape rape like doing it to women you know uh, I uh, I wouldn't like to live in a society where you have to argue all the time against rape I would like to live in a society where the unacceptable character of rape is simply the a most fundamental part of what Hegel would have called Sittlichkeit, Sittliche Substanz, the substance of morse, of customs. So that when somebody, you know the usual story, advocates rape in this stupid, ridiculous male chauvinist way, you know, oh, but maybe she liked it, she provoked me, how, how do you know that she didn't secretly enjoy it? I would like to live in a culture where you don't even have to uh, argue against. When a guy talks like that, you laugh at him, like, what a jerk, what an idiot, is he retarded, or what, you know what I mean? And I, so in this paradoxical sense, I claim that a certain type of, let's call it, dogmatism, is a necessary component and maybe even a sign of historical progress. Progress is for me that you no longer have to reason again and again against rape. But when it becomes part of our substance, I call this the anti-Reagan, your respected president. <laughs> Why? Because he made a wonderful, not even slip of tongue, he didn't mean it, I remember, I'm old enough, his presidents, and once he just gave one or two public press conferences, then he made so many mistakes, I remember that that he avoided them but okay at one of them i remember uh, uh, a journalist asked him what about the accusation that you are close to some people who deny holocaust and so on that you have friends among them no and reagan answered indignantly that's not true how can you say this whenever at my dinner table somebody denies holocaust i always attack him and Okay, the obvious question is, but what kind of friends does he have when at every dinner he has to fight for, for that there was a holocaust, you know? So that's my first point, dogmatism. Let's go on. When you mentioned, and I agree, Charlie Hebdo, uh, although we all in solidarity admired the reaction of European politicians and so on, but I found, and I wrote this in a short book that I published, I found that spectacle so hypocritical and narrow. You remember, you saw it probably in your media, the scene of the top European leaders holding hands on the front of a crowd. But did you see the true photo? Unfortunately for them, there were some photographers just 30 yards back behind and on a higher podium and you see it all it was a staged event on a paris square totally surrounded by police there are politicians and two three rows of probably uh, uh, secret police but people to create the impression of depth of a crowd and so on so uh, what was wrong with this reaction. Here again, my position is pro-European, but at the same time critical of everyone. You know, I'm tired of this story of 
oh, how narrow they are, the Arabs, and uh, we should demonstrate our sense of irony, uh, iconoclasm, you can talk about everything you want. Well, no, you cannot. And it's a good thing that you cannot. Let me give you an example. Okay, you can mock uh, 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 Quran, Islam, uh, but, uh, and don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying we should be allowed to do it. It's just an example. Try to publish just a slightly ironical text about Holocaust, and you will see how quickly European intolerance appears. What's my point here? Not, we should be open towards everything and so on. No, there are certain topics which should be simply prohibited, even by law. The other important thing here is that, uh, uh, you know, don't stigmatize too quickly other cultures. Yes, there are many things to be criticized in, in Islam in today's Arab countries. But it's absolutely clear that this, let's call it, stupid term, totalitarian term of some of the Muslims, you know, it's a strictly historical phenomenon. Uh, first, I have many friends there on the West Bank. I can tell you, they are normal people. Islam. By normal people, I mean with my spirit for obscenity, I engaged with, in dirty jokes with them, and they immediately reacted at the same level. A Muslim friend from Ramallah told me one of their jokes, which is, you know, this stupid idea, everyone knows, serious, I mean, historical linguists. You know that idea, if you die as a martyr, you go to heaven, 70 virgins await for you. Everybody knows, every serious historical linguist, it's a mistranslation. Uh, the, it's the same, that word at that time, 7th century or whatever, uh, Muhammad, uh, was a term in everyday language, it meant from white grapes, the top quality, how do you call it, sour grapes, raisins, raisins. And this was the standard sign of Arab hospitality. You know, you are a welcome guest, we give you a whole palm of 70 white raisins. So, that's Ramallah, West Bank joke. There is an ugly Palestinian boy, he wants to sleep with girls, he's too ugly, gets no girl, so he said, my God, I like sex so much that I will become a martyr, explode myself. He does it and, okay, enters heaven, and then, ah, oh, here you have them raisins. <laughs> and he said, sorry, mistranslation, can I return back, and so on, and so on. They have sense. Palestinians are, if I may use this ambiguous, some people will even maybe accuse me of racism. Palestinians are the Jews among the Arabs. That's the tragedy. Even, you know, we tend to forget that there are still around 10% of Christians among uh, Palestinians. My God, the best religious jokes I heard, not against the Arabs, but against themselves, was from Palestinian Christians. If I may tell you one which is on the edge of acceptability, but don't be afraid, it will be still accepted. This is from West Bank Arab, Christian Arab. Uh, it's the last evening of uh, Christ's uh, life. You know, he knows next day he will be crucified, he's son of God, he knows everything, of course. So his apostles are gathered 
around him, Christ is praying in a tent, and they say, my God, our Lord, he did so much for us, he just suffered. Wouldn't it be nice to make his last evening on this earth a little bit more merry, you know? So they call Mary Magdalene. The pro <laughs> like, would you go in and seduce our Lord? Of course, Mary Magdalene being who she is, oh, of course, okay. So she goes in, and after five minutes, she comes out terrified with her cry, despair. They ask themselves, the apostles, what's going on? Is our Lord a secret pervert or whatever? <laughs> no, says Mary, it works. I undressed myself, I began to dance in front of him, and he looked at me with a certain interest. Then I widely spread my legs and showed my vagina to him, and then Christ looked at it and said, oh, what a terrible wound, and put his hand on and <laughs> closed it. This is the spirit, my God. That's what, and you know what shocked me? I then had a wonderful theological debate with these people. So these were not some atheist perverts there or whatever. I think that I would almost claim that this is one of the measures of, ah, I will tell you another one. <laughs> there is even a better one, because uh, Christian joke from Palestina, which uh, includes, uh, it's a totally, uh, temporality is totally mixed. That's what I like about it. And it tells a lot about psychoanalytic notion of a decentered subject, how you are never fully yourself, you are never fully identified with your ideal ego. Uh, Christ is tired of doing his propaganda work, so he says to one of his apostles, let's take a week free on Galilean Sea and play golf there. Okay, they play golf and Christ hits the ball. Of course, misses it, the ball goes into the sea. So being Christ, who you know, knows how to walk on the water, he goes there, comes to the place, picks up the ball, comes back. Uh, and then the apostle tells him, but listen, it's too difficult uh, hit, how to call it. You cannot do it. Even how is your big one called the, 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 the most popular? Sorry? Yeah, even Tiger Woods couldn't do it. Christ says, who cares? I'm Jesus Christ, I can. He does it again, misses again. Okay, the ball falls into the sea and Christ walks on the water there. At that point, and I like this total historical nonsense, at that point, a group of American tourists come <laughs> with a bus there. And one of them sees this and steps to the apostle and says, but who is that guy there? Is he crazy? Does he think he is Jesus Christ or what? Apostle answered, no, it's worse. He thinks he's Tiger Woods. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know. I mean, that's part. Now you will say, I am obscene. But admit it, if you really, and I did it, read the New Testament. This type of spirit is already there. Look, Christ gives wisdom. Then he says, I will tell you a parable to explain it. Admit it, you never get the point of that parable. You know, like, I, I claim that uh, Christ, he had a totally provocative, different style of reasoning, enough of that. What I, so what I want to say is that on the one hand, now I will openly address a very difficult question. The question in Europe on cultural tolerance and so on, especially now with tens, even hundreds of thousands of refugees and so on. Uh, you know, I 
And this cost, this costs me even now an explosive hatred from many, I consider them fake leftists, who has this comfortable idea. We Europeans are responsible for everything, you know. Like, if there is a war in Africa, we must be somehow guilty and so on. The best answer to this was provided by an African friend of mine who exploded in this and said, are you aware in what patronizing way your attitude is racist? Because your attitude is you even don't give us the dignity to be evil. You know that you treat us like children. If we do something horrible, you must be behind it. It's almost as if, you know, in the colonial times we had the expression uh, uh, white, uh, white man's burden. Now we have the opposite white man's burden. Whenever something horrible happens, we have to be <laughs> responsible for it. Now we are responsible for many, many things, but we should be much more careful here. Why? Once I was in Missoula, Montana, to visit the birthplace of David Lynch, right? And I met some so-called Native Americans there. It was an epiphany for me. Because I love them so much, because they detected so well the hypocrisy of our politically correct respect for them. First, they absolutely rejected to be called Native Americans, because quite intelligently they, they told me, wait a minute, nature, what's the opposite of nature? It's culture. So we are Native Americans and you are cultural Americans, or what? Are we part of nature? And then they gave me a wonderful argument, maybe you know it, uh, I often use it. They said, we much prefer to be called Indians, because at least in this way, our name is a monument to white man's stupidity, you know, who <laughs> thought they are in it. And then one of them, a professor younger at the university, gave me a wonderful short book that he wrote, demonstrating that Indians, Native Americans, killed more buffaloes and burned more forests than all white people together and so on. And in a strange way, he was right. You know, they hate spontaneously this patronizing attitude, which is we white people are cultural and economic imperialists. We just exploit nature and so on, while Native Americans or Tibetans or whoever, you know, they have a holistic attitude before they uh, enter a mountain to mine it. They ask the spirit of the mountain for permission and so on, all that, you know. No, they detect very well how this, how should I call it, uh, false patronizing respect for the other. As a rule, is the worst kind of patronizing attitude, which is why, okay, to give a comical final twist to this line. You know, if you are a girl, and sorry to be sexist, but there are many nice girls, I see ladies here. Let's say that you have two boyfriends, or one of the two, or oscillate. One of them is telling you, listen, you women simply should serve men. I work, you stay at home, you wash my socks, and so on. Then you have oscillate between him and between another boyfriend who tells you, you know, 
You women still have a holistic attitude towards nature. We men are Cartesian subject, we just exploit nature, but you are in dialogue with... My proposal to you is stick to the first one. You still have a chance to retrain him. If you have the second type of a boyfriend, pack your luggage and run away as fast as you can. Because, and I'm not kidding here. Listen, I was... Uh, I was uh, reading a wonderful anthropological book about, I think it's not New Zealand, but New Guinea, the other country, where they discovered a tribe, and of course all these matriarchal ideologists uh, had an intellectual orgasm, you know, a tribe where the big goddess is a woman, and in their village, the temple in the center even has kind of a form of vagina, you know, a circle with a hole in Okay, nice. There is just one problem when you study it closely. Actual women are, of course, prohibited to enter that vagina. <laughs> you know what I mean? They had to. They had to stay out. They had to stay around and so on and so on. So, uh, or uh, I think that, and this is an old story of mine. I hope you know it. There is a wonderful anecdote which allegedly, at least, it's confirmed. I asked some anthropologists. It really happened. It's my favorite story about what is wrong with this European deep understanding of the others and so on and so on. Already in the middle of 19th century, a European anthropological expedition went into central Guinea uh, because they heard a rumor that there is some terrifying tribe there. They are dancing some death dance with black masks, the ultimate encounter with death. Okay, after a long uh, uh, travel, they arrived there in the evening, and they half understood the language of that tribe, and they somehow explained to them what they are expecting to do. Then they went to sleep. Next morning, the, tri the tribal the people there uh, really perform a dance for them. And they were fascinated. You see what authentic attitude towards death, what deeply felt uh, ecstatic attitude with uh, death, but so on. So they leave the village, return to so-called civilization, and write a nice anthropological report. Okay, everything okay, just one problem. A, a decade or so later, another anthropological group visited the same tribe. They took care of really learning their language and learned the true story. When the first group arrived, the tribal people just desperately wanted to show their hospitality. So somehow they got it that these people would like to see some crazy death dance. And they worked all the night to invent it, you know, so that they performed it next day for them, you know. So much for authentic cultural exchange and so on and so on. My best friends here are some artists in New Zealand who, you know, first, when I talked with them, they gave me the usual bullshit, you know. We resist your technological civilization, we listen to our ancestral spirits, all the bullshit. Then, after I got really friendly with them, they told me the true story. They had two agents, one in New York, one in London, who tell them what are the latest trends in the art market. And then they take care that these eternal spirits give them 
precisely the instructions which fit the latest fashion. But you know what's my point here? It's not cheating. They can be... There is nothing shameful in it. It is the last example of here, of this. Did you see a wonderful um, Inuit, Eskimo to be politically incorrect, Canadian film, some 15 years old, uh, The Fast Runner. Okay, it retells the story of an ancient uh, Inuit myth. A wonderful thing happened, apropos that film. And I'm not a politically correct guy who praises some first world poor film. No, they can be shit and boring. <laughs> but this one is surprisingly really good. Whatever. <laughs> so, uh, they changed the end of the myth, mythic story. In the original myth, it's a catastrophe, the whole tribe is slaughtered, and so on. In their version, the tribe members just uh, just exile two evil guys, not even kill them, just out and there is big reconciliation. So, there always is an idiot in such a story which was a politically correct white liberal journalist who attacked the director of the movie claiming, but didn't you fall here victim to Hollywood commercialism, like you change the ending just to make the movie more commercial and so on, and he got a wonderful answer, dignified from the director. The director said, no, you are the cultural imperialist, because this notion of sticking to the original, this is your white notion. It's precisely part of our original culture to, there is no original. You retell the story again in, and again in a different way to fit the present circumstances. You know, so things are here, again, much more uh, complex. But, okay, uh, let's go on here with the basic line, tolerance, light culture, and so on, and so on. Uh, something happened to my friend, uh, Udi Aloni, a Jewish uh, cinema maker who has very good relations with Palestinians and so on, fights also for their rights. And he, Udi Aloni, brought to United States Tamil Nadar, I'm sorry, I forgot the name, a great West Bank Palestinian rapper who not only sings against uh, Israeli occupation, but also against the limitations of their own culture, honor killings, and so on and so on. You know what happened in, at UCLA? After this guy sang, sang some songs and gave a speech, some crazy pseudo-leftist attacked him, like, why do you talk about honor killings? You just support uh, uh, Zionist propaganda in this way. If there are honor killings, they happen only because Israel keeps the Arabs isolated, all that bullshit and so on. And this guy gave them a wonderful answer. He said, you know what's the difference between you and me? You are an upper-class graduate student here, who talks in English stupid things to please your professors, I sing there in Arab and Hebrew to, to help real women avoiding catastrophes and so on. This is so important. The way to really collaborate with Palestinians, Arabs and so on is not with this uh, patronizing attitude and so on. My idea is always find some struggle where we can join forces. Especially on the West Bank, 
They don't need our enlightened feminism. Women are already organized them. Hundreds of women every year escape from their houses in uh, families. In and so, you know, that's the way to do it, to just connect our struggle with their struggle, especially now in the Middle East where uh, all countries are getting in a strange way fundamentalist. I mean, with all my respect for uh, for uh, uh, for uh, um, uh, for uh, the Jewish nation. But listen, I was a little bit shocked when I recently read proclamation of two, three ministers in the latest Netanyahu government who now claim, no, no two-state solution, West Bank is ours, totally. Okay, maybe I said, what's the argument? They quote the Bible. I'm sorry, but imagine somebody doing this on the Arab side. You would have been immediately proclaimed a fundamentalist. What's my solution here? Now, this may again surprise you. It's so sad what is happening in Israel, because I'm not saying, I'm here very honest, I'm not saying it's all just Zionist aggressivity, Arabs are good guys, and so on. No, not only they are not, but we in the West, we are doing all that is possible to promote the really bad guys. I mean, are you aware what happened in Iraq as the result of American intervention? Whatever you say about Saddam, and to avoid a misunderstanding, I have no, none of the sympathy with Saddam. He was a nightmare. But one thing he did, the same as Assad. Do you know that Syria and Iraq were the only two Middle East Arab states which were at least nominally, officially secular? Islam was not a state religion. And this was not just a symbolic act, it meant something, like for thousands of years in Iraq, even in Saddam's times, there were, I think, around two million of Christians living there. In peace, even Tariq Aziz, you remember, his foreign minister, he was a Christian. Now, the result of American intervention was that they disbanded Saddam's army, in a very stupid way, because there was no other force, so real fundamentalist Muslim militias took over, exerted pressure on... So Christians practically disappeared from Iraq. Isn't this a wonderful irony? We went there to save them from primitive Islamist regime. What 2,000 years of history didn't achieve a short American intervention did it? to deliver a relatively, religiously only, of course, tolerant country to Islamists who threw out Christians, and so on. That's why, for me, uh, uh, the true scandal, if you ask me, uh, and it's the same in Libya, I mean, like, I'm not now, how do you call it, a wise guy after the battle. M many of friends of mine warned me, okay, Gaddafi was disgusting, and so on, but... Do we have any idea what will happen if we overthrow him? Now we have another uh, failed non-existing state, and so on and so on. Uh, so, uh, but back to the point. So, my problem is uh, this one here. How do you, like, how do you, this is for me the problem of light culture. Not we have this culture, we have that culture, but what rules 
regulate the interaction among different cultures. And again, with all my sympathy for suffering Palestinians and so on and so on, here, and believe me, I'm a radical leftist, I'm not any friend of those stupid <laughs> Europeans who claim we should protect Christian Europe, throw out the refugees now, but the problem is real. In what sense? For example, I read a report, maybe you know it, on ZDF, Zweite Deutsche, the second channel, which is more a social democratic one, not a right, where they report that, you know, people usually say, but uh, Muslim women should have the right to choose the way they dress. If they want to wear that cover, burka, burka, I don't know how we call it here, we should allow them. I agree. But my problem is, but what if they don't want it and their family puts pressure on them? This is not a marginal example. In that report, it says that this happens in Germany over 2,000 times per year. That a girl is under such threat, maybe of an honor killing. So, so Germany already opened up over 20, uh, how do you call it, exile houses where it's like protecting state witnesses. They are provided with a different identity name to survive. Or another example, it's not a myth. It happened to a child of a friend of mine in Berlin, uh, uh, of a child of a friend of mine. He is in a high school, and there are about 10% of Muslim children there. So first, they wanted no pork in their meals that you get. OK, I agree with this, undoubtedly. Ah, then they went on that even if other children eat pork, it disturbs them. And then it went on. The school, he showed it to me, the school sent around uh, the, uh, a letter to all parents claiming that girls shouldn't dress too provocatively, this may disturb the, and so on and so on. And you know, then you have these horrible, unpleasant scenes like in Berlin, gay people, organized gay people, were of course, they felt oppressed, they wanted to help uh, Turks, Muslims. No, the result was that many of them were beaten by Muslims and so on and so on. Like, this is what I, where I see the problem. And here I think a light culture is needed. Like, we should first, now this will sound almost totalitarian, but I think that what is happening now in Europe, you simply cannot have hundreds, you know, radical leftists tell you this bullshit, you know, like, let's radically open the borders, over, blah, blah. that's nonsense. You provoke uh, 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 anti-immigrant, uh, right-wing populist backlash. I'm for militarization, don't misunderstood me. Not this militarization of, you know, put refugees into camps, but a kind of a all I don't think it will happen, it's too utopian, but all European action, you organize reception centers already there, maybe in Turkey, Lebanon, Syrian coast, and then in a very rational way, you register them, you take them to Europe here, there, if it will not, and of course, you make the rules clear. And by light culture, I don't mean you should renounce your values, but just these basic things, like, we have certain elementary rules of individual human rights and so on and so on. Sorry, you have to respect them here. And 
if I say this, now I'm in a crazy situation, I quite like it, because Sartre, Jean-Paul, said somewhere, if you are, for the same text, attacked from both sides, this is a good sign that you are maybe on the right path. You know, it happened with my book, Welcome to the Desert of the Real. It was translated in, in, uh, in Israel, in Hebrew, and also in Arab. Jerusalem Post proclaimed it a, a brutal anti-Semitic book, Ah, but uh, Al-Ahram proclaimed it the most perfidious, disgusting uh, 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 Zionist propaganda. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm on the right way. You know what I'm saying? Uh, now you will say, am I not going too far by even uh, 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 supporting BDS, that boycott divestment? No, you know in what sense do I support it conditionally? First, I'm, I have problems with it in Europe. Because, let's be clear, even if they say, no, it's not against the Jews, it's against the state of Israel, but, you know, any prohibition associated to Jews is still dangerous in Europe, especially now when anti-Semitism is not a joke, it's exploding again in Europe, more or less openly in Hungary and some other countries. Second, so, the BDS that I know, that's crucial, it's strictly coordinated between progressive Palestinians and my Jewish friends. You find no, no Hamas or whatever hardliners point to, and they make it clear. Let's not forget that it's absolutely, and it wants to be non-violent. So again, but to return to, you see my problem here. I think that this is my limit. Yes, it's not a matter of, here I agree with Habermas, although otherwise we are not best friends. When he said, it's disgusting to hear these stories, this pathetic, sentimental moralization. You know, like, poor refugees, don't you have a heart to help them and so on? No, a TV station in my country, they caught me on the street, I don't like to give interviews, and they asked me, would you take refugees into your apartment? I say, no, I hate them. It's like, I don't like even my own family in my apartment, you know. But I said, it's not a question of sympathy. It's a question of simple duty. I said, but I'm ready to lose half of my income to help them. I hate this sentimental moralization, you know, oh, poor, uh, and so on and so on. You know, because from here, you are one step from what I call the most intelligent uh, Starbucks uh, socialism which is, it's an ingenious operation, that's today's ideology, you know? Like, our usual attitude, if you want to be moderately leftist, it is, yes, I'm a consumerist, but I feel bad, because, you know, people are starving in Africa, blah, blah. But you know what's the Starbucks trick? Like, our cappuccino is a little bit more expensive, but 1% goes for some stupid children in Guatemala, the other one to see. So, it's a, like the message is, you can be consumerist, and pay a little bit more, but your social duty price for it, you pay the price for it. It's included in the price, you know. That's why I'm deeply suspicious about all this, uh, how should I call it, uh, charity approach or whatever. But, okay, so this would be my first clear conclusion. Yes, Europe should do it. Uh, absolutely. And again, as I wrote in a text, which again brought me many enemies, 
it's clear that we, Europe, and also you, United States, and not only you, we are not innocent here. Let's be serious. Uh, where do refugees come from? Iraq. Sorry, but who was it who attacked Iraq? And I mean, you know, that's the tragedy of American politics. Serbs have a proverb, Serbs, ex-part of Yugoslavia. We win all the wars, but we lose the peace, no? I mean, this could be an epithet for United States politics today. You know, of course, you easily won in Iraq. And what's the result? That the majority of Iraq, the Shia part, you basically delivered it to Iran, <laughs> not to your arch enemy. The other part is ISIS. Syria, it's again partially the result of this, partially, you know, when we people claim, should we intervene in Syria? What a stupid question. We already did, although maybe not directly militarily. It's, we know the story. Assad is supported by Iran, by Russia, partially by China. The other side is supported by Turkey and Saudi Arabia. And for example, one thing that I would have done is the following one, and I think it's a legitimate question. Did you notice a strange thing happening there? Did you notice how, how there are extra-rich Arab countries. Let's name them. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Emirates. You know how many refugees they accepted? Literally, zero, none. I mean, I found this an obscenity. Why? Because first, most of the refugees are Sunnis, which means even from a religious standpoint, there shouldn't be a problem and so on. And also they are co-responsible, at least Saudi Arabia, which is openly supporting anti-Assad forces in uh, there. Uh, so uh, again, I think that uh, I think that one of the reasonable things to do would be to exert a brutal, maybe not military, but financial economic pressure on Saudi Arabia, and you can break them down immediately. Because, you know, Saudi Arabia is not a self-enclosed fundamentalist state, maybe ideologically, but economically. Saudi Arabia is like a big expositor of Western banks, the money flowing in and out. I mean, the moment you cut that, uh, it's over. So what I'm saying is that this would be for me the proper attitude. First, against anti-immigrant right-wingers, we should absolutely insist. The percentage, even if you accept this topic, you know, how many foreigners can we tolerate, but the percentage is still so small that the true threat to Europe are those European anti-immigrant populists who want to defend Christian legacy in Europe. Imagine Europe where Marine Le Pen is in power in France, where, and let's go on, UKIP in England, and so on. That's the end of Europe for me, of Europe that we know. That's one point. So absolutely Europe should do it, but in an organized way. What I think cannot be done is to do it in this chaotic way, people simply wander around and so on and so on. That's the joke. I spoke in Slovenia with a Syrian refugee who told me, we want to go to Norway and study there. I told him cynically, well, nice. Half of Slovenes would probably also like to do that, you know. And then he said, you want to register us, but we are not cattle to be registered. We are people. Then I told him, but you want to go to Norway. Norway is an extremely organized welfare state where everybody, everyone is over-registered, and so on and so on. 
So that would be, to put it very simply, my, oh, the only solution that I see, a pan-European strategy of simply organizing it as a complex military. I repeat it, not military in the sense you arrest them, but I don't see any other institution apart from the army which simply can do it. You know, establish outposts already there, Turkey, Syria there, and organize, organize the transport, and so on and so on. Okay, let me just add some things before, where is the evil guy there, before he will uh, cut me off, because I have many other uh, things to say. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, now, you will, now you will say, but in this way we are imposing our values. You know, I know all this politically correct story. I'm not an idiot that the moment you emphasize personal freedoms, like if a girl runs from her family, we should protect her, isn't, doesn't this mean that we impose on others values which are ultimately European values? In the sense of, in other cultures, it's considered more acceptable that family or collective rights, duties have priority. Well, my answer is here very brutal. Yes, but we have to accept it. You cannot play both ways here. And you have a similar problem here in the United States. I talked with some lawyers. For example, with people who are definitely not terrorists, Amish, you know. They protested when their children were obliged to go to normal English schools. And they were right to claim, if you take this from us, in a couple of generations, we lose our identity. Yes, but you have to decide here. And I think we should simply accept, you know, we should drop this illusion that you can have some neutral liberal space where one group will be where mother will teach their daughters when they are 11 years, how do you use condom, how do you put it on the guy. On the other hand, you will have a family where they will do clitorodectomy and so on and so on. You have to make a choice here. And I would do it without any great ethical problems or whatever and so on. We have to establish certain set of rules. And I think that we can do it in an, with clear conscience, because yes, I am aware behind all these refugees there is European intervention, even in Africa, uh, like Congo. Congo may appear living nightmare, the state doesn't function, blah, blah, warlords, but it's probably one of the world countries in the world whose economy is to the utmost degree included into the world market. You know, all the local warlords selling Coltrane on and all that, and so on, and so on. So, but nonetheless, uh, so let's go quickly on here. Why the title? Now, at least allow me to finish with that. Uh, more alienation. I, another part of this European legacy would be uh, that, uh, as Peter Slaughter, with whom, again, I politically disagree, put it nicely, we don't need today politics of understanding, immersion, we need politics of distance, of polite ignorance. Like, uh, let's be serious. Let's say I live in a large apartment block. I'm ashamed to use the word condominium because when I heard it the first way, the first time as a young idiot, I thought, are these buildings where you get free condoms if you live there? <laughs> but what I want to say is that 
let's say there is an Arab here, a Jew there, a, a, a Chinese guy there, Latino American there, African there. I have absolutely no interest of understanding them all, their way of life. Why should I? Because my basic psychoanalytic premise is that probably they don't understand themselves even, <laughs> you, you know. I think that through, I don't accept this liberal blackmail, but did you really understand them? How do you know you did? No, I would like, I think we should learn kind, polite ignorance. You are my whatever, Jewish, black, uh, Arab, uh, Chinese neighbor. I greet you nicely. You can rely on me if you will be in trouble. I help you. I hope you will help me and so on. Maybe, exceptionally with some of you, I establish a contact. But maybe not. We need proper distance. And I claim there is something liberating in this distance. We absolutely shouldn't feel bad about this. And uh, so, and, and now I, okay, I will be very quick because I have a whole system of alienations that I want to sustain. The other thing I radically uh, disagree is this idea that since we live in global capitalism, uh, local cultures which are threatened by it are one of, this is the fashionable jargon term, sites of resistance against it. I brutally, violently disagree. And here, it's already circulating. I was with that black guy, who is my type. We immediately exchanged obscene jokes. Uh, David Smiley, PBS. Uh, I, and I, I explained to him why Malcolm X is my hero. He did something ingenious, which is politically at the level of Hegel, I claim. You know what does it mean, Malcolm X? X stands for we don't have roots. We were torn out of our original ethnic environment, we were deracinated. But his genius was what? His formula was not that stupid, you know, remember that Kitchy, uh, Kitchy TV series and novel Alexis Haley, Roots, uh, Return to Our Roots. No, uh, uh, Malcolm X understood well that this X is not meant as a stigma of victimhood, but also as a chance, a hope of freedom. We are not constrained by any tradition, which means we are more free to create a new em emancipatory society. We can be more universalist than you white people yourself, and so on and so on. He got this point. It's in the same way that I read, I know this appears fashionable, but I really think it's a good novel. Uh, Tony Morrison, Beloved. Medea is my hero, not that bitch Antigone, whom I cannot stand. <laughs> You know, this idea that woman is not defined by motherhood, I think it's an extremely profound novel of birth of black feminine subjectivity out of overcoming this absolute priority of uh, motherhood and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, again, and for the same alienation, I am even at the level of politics, Another, if you are still, I still consider myself a radical leftist, of course, a weird one. I hate this, you know, today most of the leftists admit it. Two main forms of the left of the 20th century, social democracy and uh, Stalinist state socialism, their time is over, no? Even with welfare state, let's admit it. It's no longer in 
today's conditions of worldwide global market, you cannot do it. But there is a third fetish which still remains, what they call anti-representative. We need immediate local self-organization, local communities, transparent self-organization and so on. I would hate to live in a society like that, you know. Every afternoon I would have to participate in some stupid local meetings, how we organize kindergartens, water and so on. I want efficient alienation. I want some efficient, invisible state apparatus to do it. I want my freedom to read, to do my stupid, to watch my stupid movies and to read books and to write books. That's enough for me apart from other private things and so on. So, but no, you, you see my point. This myth I consider dangerous. Now you will say, I, now the last, some of the last uh, provocations. One would be this one. Uh, 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 for this Amy Goodman, whom I appreciate very much, you know, of democracy now, now for two years no longer wants to talk to me. You know why? Because once I gave a, an interview to her show and she asked me innocently, she didn't know with ki what kind of a madman she is talking, no? So she asked me, how do we find right-wing fight, right-wing racism? I answered her immediately with left-wing racism, you know? And then she said, what, are you crazy? No, I told her something very specific. I'm asking you a simple question. Yes, we have this basic alienation. We, in a cold way, respect each other, but at a distance, no? And, uh, but from time to time, you do establish authentic, like the, how you call them, icebreakers, so that you really are, and I claim you cannot do this without some kind of minimal obscenity. You exchange, you have to do something, and I claim from my past, my God, you can't do it without racism. Even if it has the form of racism, and here I refer to my own experience from our youth, before in Yugoslavia, before ethnic tensions really exploded in early mid-80s, I remember when I met friends from Montenegro, Bosnia, Serbia, we, each nation in ex-Yugoslavia was stigmatized by a certain racist cliché. We Slovenes were, for example, considered, how do you call it, thrifty, misers. Like a Slovene joke is an old wealthy farmer is dying and all the families gathered around. And he said, are you all here? My granddaughter, yes. My son, yes. And then he raises the voice. But if you are all here, why is then the light on there in the corridor, you know? That's <laughs> Slovenes. <laughs> then Montenegro are supposed to be... Uh, uh, Lazy, extremely lazy. Okay, many of you maybe even heard my standard joke, but I know 20 others. Because at the same time, Montenegro is earthquake territory. You know how does a Montenegro guy masturbate? He digs a small hole in the earth, puts the penis in, and waits for the earthquake. Because he's even too lazy to, and so on. But you know what I mean? I remember those, and not to mention Bosnians. They are supposed to be kind of a primitively, cunningly obsessed with sex. Like, they have a wonderful joke, uh, joke against uh, this, United, you know, European help they provided after the war, teachers who wanted to be modern teachers, and the idea is that in some high school they have a modern teacher who said, now I will be teaching you classical music, 
but you know, not in this traditional way, Beethoven, he was born and died, this, but, uh, but in this way, each of you should tell me a certain uh, uh, image, motif, and then name one composition by Beethoven which fits it. No? Okay. First you have a boy who said, revolution, honor, warfare, third symphony, heroica, of course, no? Then a girl stands up and said, Bambi stream, forest, blah, blah, pastoral symphony. Then the Bosnian guy stands up and says, a big heart penis like this, what? Für Elise, for Eliza, you remember that piano piece? I mean, it's vulgar, but you know, I still have such a fond memory of how I met my friends from other republics, and the last orgy I had is the, with that famous artist Marina Abramovic, you know. We laughed for two, three hours. This was authentic contact, because, you know, it wasn't mostly jokes about you. It was a kind of a wonderful competition, who will tell about himself, about myself, a more, a more disgusting joke. And I can tell you, they go much further. <laughs> the only problem is that they are, tend to be a little bit problematic from the feminist standpoint, in the sense that they can be very funny as jokes, but uh, like the presupposition is men exchange women, you know, it's the solidarity of men at the expense of women. For example, from my history, just to give you an idea of what I'm aiming at, it's a wonderful, simple story. I used it in one of my books. When I was serving the Yugoslav army, I was very friendly with an Albanian soldier. We were simply calling, and one morning he approached me and instead of telling me a story, no, sorry, the usual greeting, good morning, he told me, uh, 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 I screw your mother. I know exactly what he meant to translate it into full language. It was, now I really want to be a friend with you. And I know what he expected me to do, to return with a similar obscenity. Believe me, I didn't have a problem. Instantly, <laughs> I answered him, uh, go ahead after I finish with your sister, no? <laughs> now comes the miracle. Then we embraced each other, and it's not what you maybe thought. Oh, dirty male chauvinism all the day, we were just telling dirty jokes. No, he was a student of quantum physics, and I had long debates with him on that. You know how only the trace of that incident survived? Every morning when we met, instead of usual good morning, we just exchanged one word. He told me, mother, I said, sister. Without any laughter, it was a basic solidarity. Now, to be self-critical, of course, it's a male chauvinist brotherhood, no? So my feminist counteract would be, would be at least the two women should meet, you know, like, screw your husband, go ahead after I finish with your brother, I don't know what. But I, so I'm well aware of the problematic nature of this. But still, I think that without this type of minimal exchange of obscenities, you ca simply cannot have authentic contact. On the other hand, uh, I always have also bad news. Uh, on, the, uh, on the other hand, I'm so sick and tired of this universal carnival logic, you know, like 
wonderful in Athens, Syntagma uh, Square or Tahrir Square. One million people, we were all together crying solidarity. <laughs> this is the easy part. I, your American expression after drinking too much is the morning after, no? The true test of radical change is the morning after. How, when things return back to normal, how do you feel then the actual change? And that's the tragedy for me. There, frankly, I don't think the left didn't uh, because uh, uh, found proper answer. Because, you know, this topic liberating of carnival, like at least for a brief moment, social rules are suspended. Uh, the king is a beggar, the beggar is a king, we are all. Well, you know, if you know a little bit literary theory, who elaborated the theory of Carnival, the Russian fellow traveler of formalists, Mikhail Bakhtin, in his book on François Rabelais. But, I see you are nervous, no? You are sharpening the knife, no? Okay, immediately. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know what? Uh, Boris Groys, a friend of mine, I don't agree with him, but he's well-known Russian art theorist, he discovered now with his friends the archives of Bakhtin from the 30s when he was exiled into Kazan. That's how he survived Stalinism. His uh, 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 manuscript notes for the book on Carnival. And you know what was the shocking discovery? You know what was the secret model for Carnival? Stalinist purpose. This is, was a big carnival. Today you are party secretary, tomorrow you are English traitor or whatever you want. Uh, uh, so even uh, look at Ku Klux Klan in this way. Imagine a small American city uh, in the south. In, when was the golden era of Ku Klux Klan? 1920s or whatever. It was a carnival, like drunken white people. Uh, Saturday evening, let's go rape some black women, uh, 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 some. You know what I mean? Theo, uh, Theodore Adorno saw this very well, already in the 30s, that so-called totalitarian regimes are never just that, like strict rules, renunciation. They always, as it were, bribe you with some false anti-emancipatory enjoyment. You pretend to be a fanatical fighter and you can rape the Jews, you can beat them, you can have your fun. You can have your fun, as we say. So, uh, uh, so uh, uh, again, uh, let me conclude with a Hegelian point. My favorite joke, which I used in two of my books, I hope you don't know it. There is a movie director who I think deserves more than Hitchcock to be elevated into next megastar. It's Ernst Lubitsch. If you didn't see, maybe if you know some of his work, people usually know only, uh, usually Ninochka, his gre uh, uh, with uh, Greta Garbo, one of the last of her films, no? No, his true masterpieces are To Be or Not To Be, a satire on Hitler, and the early one, uh, uh, Travel in Paradise. I mean, Go home, do it. You can download them for free. But in Ninochka, you have one of the best di dialectical jokes. Dialectical in the sense of, if you want to understand what Hegel means by bestimmte negation, determinate negation, you should listen to that joke. It's a standard joke. It's a more complex. I simplified. It's like this. A guy comes to a cafeteria and says, 
coffee but without cream, please. And the waiter says, sorry, sir, we don't have cream, we only have milk. So I cannot really give you coffee without cream, I can only give you coffee without milk. So you see the paradox. Literally, in this fetishist identity, you get the same coffee, but the Hegelian lesson is, if it's coffee without milk, it's not the same as coffee without cream. And this is, for example, the problem of universality. Here, I agree with those critics of Eurocentrism. Yes, a universal man, but the overcoming, you know, it's one thing to be universal by overcoming just our European identity or to be universal also by overcoming another identity. You can be universal in different modes. And I admire here, my other hero is Toussaint Louverture, you know, Haiti Revolution. They did something wonderful. In 1804, they established finally the black state and they wrote the constitution and they had a problem because they wanted to be a black republic, but at the same time, they had to, they were honest enough to admit that many white people, especially Polish soldiers from Napoleon's army, joined their side. And they wanted also to give them the right to be full Haiti citizens. So you have a wonderful paradox. Article 4 of Haiti Constitution from 1804. Haiti is a black republic. All citizens of Haiti, independently of the color of their skin, are black. <laughs> this is what we should do. Because our liberals, when they want to help the blacks, implicitly they are saying, you know, even if you are black, but if you behave well, you will be really white like us. You see the point how, it's, you see the similarity with this uh, Ninochka joke and so on and so on. Now that, uh, that coffee without milk is not the same as coffee without and so on and so on. And it is here that uh, uh, if I began, let me just conclude with my favorite topic, which always fascinates me. This, we spoke about, and that's the, where the true struggle against racism functions. Let's call it micropolitics of racism. No, nobody is today a big racist, almost nobody, okay. No, you say, oh, I like blacks, I like Arabs, but, and there are some details usually, no, like the standard liberal idea of many of my friends is, oh, it's a shame what we white people do to, did to the blacks and so on, but nonetheless, and then you begin. Their food smells strangely, their music is too loud and so on, you know, all these details. So, what fascinates me absolutely, and that's what Hegel called Zittliche Substanz. This should be the, the place of fight. Is, you know, the paradox is the following one. In every society we have, of course, certain rules which regulate interaction, specific cultural rules, and so on and so on. But it's not just like that. Did you notice how always you have, let's call them, meta-rules which tell you how you should take the explicit rules? Because that's the elementary structure of every culture. There are certain things which are prohibited, but in reality, 
you are silently even solicited to do them. You know, like most of the sexual prohibitions in patriarchal societies works like this, you know. Father tells you, beware of the girls, and then secretly, eh, did you already do it or whatever. So again, it's a prohibition, but you are silent. But a much more interesting phenomenon is the opposite one, where there are things which you have, you are allowed, permitted, even solicited to do them, but you are given the right to do them on condition that you don't use that right. You know, like formally, you can, and uh, at this level of, like, wasn't the whole problem with uh, emancipation of the black that they were given citizenship right on condition that they don't use it still 1960s, 70s, and so on and so on. So you see, this is how I read Freud's great motto from Interpretation of Dreams, Traumdotung, Acheronta Movebo, move the underground. It's not so much important to change the explicit rules, but to change this invisible texture which tells you how to use these rules. So don't kill me. I don't know. I, you must be tired. Sit down quietly for, I promise, two, three minutes. Just to tell you some wonderful, from my own practice, just two, three examples of how this works. Imagine, it's my dream, imagine that we are in Soviet Union in 35. This is the Central Committee. I'm Comrade Stalin. I give a speech. Then, of course, you applaud for 10 minutes. That's another story. And then there is a debate. And then one of you is stupid enough to stand up and attack me. Okay. Next day, the question will be, who was the last one who saw you alive, of course. <laughs> but then imagine something else, that another person stands up and starts to shout at the first person. Are you crazy? How dare you attack Comrade Stalin? Don't you know that we don't do this here? I claim he would have been arrested even faster. You know what's the paradox? It was prohibited to criticize Stalin, of course. But it was even more prohibited to publicly announce this prohibition. That was the whole, and this is what fascinates me. This structure, which is not necessarily uh, an, 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 uh, an, uh, an oppressive structure. It is more complex. Look what happened to me with my theoretical opponent, personally good friend, uh, Judith Butler. Once I was tasteless towards her and used in my style some dirty words and so on. So I felt bad and I called her later on the phone and told her, listen, Judith, I'm very sorry and so on. Okay, it was no problem. She's a nice lady, she said, Slavoj. Although it was a little ambiguous, she said, we all know how you are, so no. <laughs> so no problem, you don't have to and so on. But then you don't owe me any apology, no? But then with my evil mind, my immediate reaction was to tell her, okay, if I don't owe it to you, then I take it back. Because, <laughs> namely, you see, this is the refined paradox I'm mentioning. How does really an apology function? If I apologize to you, the only way for you to really accept the apology is to say it wasn't necessary. If you say, my God, I deserved it, it means you don't really pardon me. You see this beautiful paradox of you do something and you succeed in what you wanted to do precisely 
when it is proclaimed superfluous. And I think all erotics works like this. That's my second example. Uh, did you see a shitty movie? It's a little bit boring, but not so bad, with Ivan McGregor when she was, he was still a working-class hero before he became Jedi or whatever. <laughs> Brushed off a British movie about Stryker. There is a wonderful there. He accompanies a girl to her house. Very Hegelian point of dialogue. And uh, there, they are already flirting. The girl tells him, would you mind to go out to my apartment to drink some coffee? He says, yeah, but there's a problem, I don't drink coffee. And she said, no problem, I don't have any. Can you imagine a more erotically provocative invitation? But you know what's the problem? The problem is that the moment, uh, but it must remain implicit, the moment you mention sex, Everything would have been ruined. Like if she says, listen, I just want you to fuck my brain out. Who cares about COVID? It's ruined, everything. That elegance, uh, that elegance fascinated me. You know how, again, you do something and you proclaim it superfluous. Or a class another classical example that I know. Uh, uh, no, it happened to me, really, uh, with a black friend of mine. I don't want to, he's a great academic name. I don't want to embarrass him only for this reason. I will not say her name. I was in my usual evil, extreme bad taste mood. So I told him, is it true? Sorry. Is it true that you black people not only have a penises like this, but that you even can move them freely. So if you walk naked and you have a fly here, bump, you can do it, no? <laughs> It worked. He embraced me and he told me, now you can call me nigger. But you know, this meant you are really one of us. Because, you know, try to call them nigger if you are not one of them, you know. But then, when I told this story to other friends, they told me, but you didn't get the point. It wasn't meant that you really will call him nigger. And I said, but that's the whole point. Of course, he didn't mean now you just shout nigger, nigger, and so on. <laughs> It was strictly an offer to be rejected, you know. Like, it wasn't meant you really do it. It was just a kind of a very gentle sign of like, we are, we are really uh, close or whatever at this level, you know. And the very last story, it's, you get this mechanism at its purest. I have a photocopy of this document at home. When I was young, a friend of mine, this was mid-1970s. We still have obligatory military service in ex-Yugoslavia. I don't know how it is here. Okay, you don't have obligatory military service. But in ex-Yugoslavia, you know, for one week you get some preliminary training, then the big event happens. You know, like, all soldiers are gathered, then publicly you recite that, me, you say your name, I'm ready to give my life to protect my... And then you are a full soldier. After that, there is a big, like, rich book. You have to sign your name. A friend of mine did an incredible thing. When he, it came to him, he said, is it a free choice or do you order me to sign my name? The officer said, my God. This is an oath. You cannot be forced to take an oath. It's f you do it freely. Okay. My friend said, then I don't sign it. The officer said, are you crazy? You will be put in prison and so on. Okay, so after long negotiation, my friend, and that's the historical document, got a paper where the officer wrote, I, officer, blah, blah, 
formally order this soldier to freely sign the oath. And I don't think this is some dark totalitarian mechanism. Our social link at some most elementary level always works like that. And you see, here, in all these paradoxes of you say something, but how are you to take it? Or a classical example, I don't know how do you have it here, but I think it's similar like with us. Let's say I'm poor and you evil guy who will interrupt me, you are rich. You invite me to dinner out. We know in advance you will pay. But do you have here also this ritual that when the bill arrives, we have to play this game, no, no, I will and so on, no. Once, just to annoy a friend of mine, my God, I had the deepest sadistic pleasure. After my friend said, no, no, I will pay, I said, okay, pay it, you know. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that you see the elegance. We both know that this is in a way a hypocritical play. But again, but it's not hypocritical really. It establishes an authentic social link. Okay, as they say, did you read when you were young those German kids novels, Karl May, Winnetou? And their Indian said, ich habe gesprochen, how? So I say this and I finish. Thank you very much. Okay, um, who cares about half an hour among friends, you know, yeah. Just before and whether I should say the staff have to come in and clean up, and I think that's one trope and metaphor that we can use. I said, in Europe, among fake lefties, this is popular. They say, what about poor cleaning ladies who are not paid over time, you know? And I could also come in and say we have a better event coming up right now. So some of the people leaving right now hope better places to go, television to watch, I hope you took notes what movies to see, and... Um, but who still watches TV? In my country, we download all the time, man. It's all one big country by now. It's yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I thought I'd start. Inclusive of, I hope you include in this one big country, North Korea. No? <laughs> they have everything downloaded already. They have. It's, uh, I to provoke my friends. I said, you know, Shangri-La from Lost Horizon. Yes. North Korea is Shangri-La for me. <laughs> so I thought I'd ask one question, okay. and then um, sort of to mix the, you had very pragmatic suggestions of what Europe should yeah, do right also, now. Yeah. I'll ask, and then I'll open it up, and I'll gather some yeah. of the questions. You have to be very brief and concise. Yeah, because the cleaning ladies are waiting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's say we see a tomorrow where some of your recommendations are implemented. Yeah. Europe has a very alienated and efficient way of dealing with uh, refugees. Currently, there's a huge um, debate around war refugees, especially from Syria. Are they war or are they economic? No, the, no. actually, I want to make a different point. It is not a debate right now about yeah. economic refugees yeah. from other yeah, parts yeah. of the world. And that distinction in your suggestion that Europe has to actually produce a way of thinking about this. Yeah. How do you make this distinction between a war refugee versus an economic refugee? who seem to be at this moment being discussed in different ways, in ways that you've been describing, that European liberals and far right-wingers will make those distinctions, they will coincide. That these people deserve it, and these people deserve it a little less, mm. but living a good life is not as good as escaping violence. So how would you sort of address that fact that is being active? I will give you a horrible answer. Go ahead, yes. Again, an ultra, and people think that as a Hegelian, I only like some extreme intellectual place, that this, I consider this basically a 
pragmatic problem where you have to find a kind of a compromise solution when there is a formula. What I don't buy is this, I claim, pseudo-radical left solution. No, we don't have the right to draw any distinctions, open the borders, everyone should come, and so on and so on. Because uh, the hypocrisy is that I claim that all pseudo-radical leftists who advocate this, they know very well that it will not happen. What they are worried about is their own moral superiority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, in a, but don't you see, okay, do you have, now I'm not bluffing, sincerely I ask you, I don't think there is a simple a priori solution here. You have to be very pragmatic and say, I know this sounds brutal, cruel, but is there any other solution there to say, wait a minute, it's brutal, but we have to establish some criterion, of course, not racist one, not religious, but let's be vulgar, the level of suffering or what? Well, and Who can come? Let's be honest about the criteria. You brought up Toussaint Louverture, this country had a yeah. policy about Cuban versus Haitian refugees treated very, very differently. There's always been made a distinction. And so this, for me, Haiti was really that you brought up Haiti, which had a very radical idea to think everybody is black, regardless of whether they're black or not. Everybody yeah, but this meant everybody can come there. But you know what's the problem? They knew very well that the problem that nobody wants to come there, you know. Well, like to be cynical, you know. It's easy to, like Stalin also always called working class people to come to Soviet Union because. I kind of wanted to, just to sort of, you know, listen to you, sort of, you want to shift a certain line, one that has regulated speech in certain ways, and push it very far and say there's obscenity, there are jokes, that this line has been drawn too closely. And, other one, and then you said that we have to draw other lines. Yeah. You have to make very clear distinctions. Yeah. You're saying, on the one hand, this discourse cannot be determined and regulated and policed like mm -hmm. this, but other discourses are not sufficiently regulated right now. There's yeah, this absolutely. kind of vagueness about anybody could come in. He said, no, that's what yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to open it up? And no, what, sorry, just to, I've been No, my point, I agree with you. My point was not we need more opening or more closure, but very specific, as you said nicely. There are, uh, no, my point would be more this one, that uh, often we get caught in abstract problems, but when you look at it, for example, people often tell me, but how do you know that if you say the dirty joke that you are not really perceived as racist, the obscenities no, that I gave? I claim no, in actual life situation, you always know perfectly well. Are you violating, is it racism or not? I don't, if anything, there is much more racism, and although I have many English friends, would you agree, let's now, uh, uh, target on a common enemy, you know. <laughs> Not the Jew, but uh, the British, no? You know what worries me much more? Englishmen, from my experience, maybe also Japanese know the same, are masters of being extremely aggressive and humiliating, but in the form of extreme politeness. Yeah. This is a much more dangerous uh, 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 thing. It's a much more powerful thing usually. Powerful even, yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's, yeah, it's a kind of Oscar Wildean way of being in the world. Yeah. Sorry? Oscar Wilde is sort of the epitome. Although, can you imagine I, my favorite, one of my favorite papers on socialism and communism, it's still, you remember, the first paragraph of the Oscar Wilde text on 
socialism, where he basically says, I want socialism so that I will not have to feel sorry and to help the poor and so on and so on. <laughs> it's a wonder. I mean, oh, and, don't under... And an irony that would be worth yeah. talking with you about at a later yeah. time is that then Oscar Wilde is put on trial for what and goes to prison for obscenity. So in some ways, he pushes dialogue in a story, he pushes mm -hmm. conversation mm -hmm. in a certain, what you're trying to do, and then at the same time, it gets shut down in another mm -hmm. place. Yeah, but you know what is the saddest thing? I read books about that. Is that what really, because in spite of his dandyism and so on, he was, my God, this will sound so patronizing, but he was really open towards ordinary poor people. And what really, I read this in a biography of Oscar Wilde, what really uh, hurt him was the total lack of sympathy in his predicament from ordinary working class people. They dismissed him simply as upper class decadence and so on and so on. This hurt him very much. Should we open it up to... Uh, but please, uh, just two things, a democratic debate, which means as a good Stalinist, did you distribute the questions already and now? And second thing, we have now a dialogue, but remember, I am a Platonist and I like if you know Plato, you know how do they look the last Plato dialogues. Mm -hmm. One guy talks all the time, the other guy only says every 10 minutes like, yes, Socrates, by Zeus, so let's have this type of dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll be the Ephib to Socrates, okay. okay. Yeah. No, fuck you, I'm Socrates. You just say, by Zeus, you are right, and so on. So anybody would Please. like to venture uh, into this uh, agora? Uh, okay. <laughs> Forum. I will ask you something else listening to you since no one is volunteering right now. You're such a deep romantic about the erotic, about the possibility of the unsaid and the unspoken. And I'm always interested that you keep that space as, and it makes me think of, um, since we're in Washington, yeah. politics. Hannah Arendt once said that love between two people is the apolitical space in the world because it's worldless. It's the end of world as a communal space. And when I listen to you, when you do the examples, you always call it the erotic, and I think it also is romantic. And it's first, I agree with her that I don't believe... Uh, first, I'm totally opposed to that stupid uh, Freudo-Marxist-leftist dream in communism, sex and work and politics, everything will be the same. That's uh, not your position, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, which is my ideal, and I've written about it, love. Now yes. that they opened up a little bit Russian archives, it's proven that Lenin did have an affair with Inessa Armand. It was done, first, it was a passionate affair. There is a photo which was, of course, censored in Stalinist era, where you see Lenin at her Inessa's funeral. He is totally, obviously, totally broken down. That was his end. But what I like, you know what's my basic notion of true love? Uh, like, uh, let's say we fight for a cause, whatever is your cause, communism, whatever, whatever. True love does not mean I have a love partner and I prefer her. No, you always have, if there is a choice, pre you have to choose the public cause, science, work, whatever. Uh, you don't gain respect in love by, that's the paradox of love, the message to the man and woman should be, you mean everything to me, but I don't want to ruin it by sacrificing my life totally for you. For me, the idea, and this is what, for example, Lenin and Inessa Armand did. It was 
everybody knew it but just talked it but you know like they worked like crazy for the revolution but the love was outside it as some kind of uh, uh, absolute point this is why the example that i usually give is marguerite dira novels where there I hate this Tristan and this all the bullshit, you know. <laughs> the two lovers, let's immerse in the night of love and so on. No, love, true love for me is not just dirty things that happen <laughs> during the night, but as my friend Alain you likes to say how you build a world out of it, how you restructure your life out of it. And here I agree with you, it's not so much romanticism, but I don't like what is happening today. We apparently live in a permissive times, but not quite. I claim our spontaneous ideology is some kind of hedonist Buddhism. You know, like, uh, be truly yourself, realize your potentials, but don't too much, as they like to say, this Jedi wisdom, don't get too much attached to any object and so on, you know. And no, for me, uh, love doesn't function like that, uh, and this is why today, uh, like, if love is too passionate, it's almost perceived as something, uh, as something uh, 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 obscene, prohibited, this time. We don't live in... Alain Badiou says to love reconstruct. It's a revolutionary new world. So the other example I would say is Gilles Deleuze says, mm -hmm. When Angela Davis is on trial, yeah. you say, this is a woman in love. Yeah. And said, yeah. it's a revolutionary world yeah. out of that. So it's not a world that we mm -hmm. know you mm -hmm. love and you keep on recreating the same world. Yeah. So this, this yeah. is what I meant by the romantic yeah. part yeah. of you. But, but all, yeah, I agree. But also what I want to emphasize is this one, that here, although I have other problems with Hannah Arendt, but here I agree totally with her that uh, uh, love should be kept apart is an exception. It's not that, you know, I hate again this idea. Let me ask you another thing. Yeah. The Supreme Court of this country decided that same-sex marriage is legal. Hannah Arendt would have said no love could have been legislated at all points. She said one of the greatest scandals in this country was that miscegenation was not legal until 1967, Love versus Virginia. She said that should never be regulated politically at all. And in a weird way, she would have probably not been totally in favor of legislating what marriage could be. She said that should be out of the realm of politics altogether. But what does this mean? But, but if you are a no so-called normal heterosexual couple, then it's still legislated. So it's a question what? of equality, but she said, but it should ultimately probably not be decided by the state at all. I am here, that's interesting, because I am here much more, again, you would say romantic, you know, in what sense? Uh, I am well aware of all those Marxist stuff that marriage is not just love, marriage resolves the problem of inheriting property, all that. But precisely today when, for the great majority of people, the, what is at stake is not property. What I, the beauty of marriage for you, for me, is two people declare publicly, fuck you, we ultimately don't care, fuck off, you know, like, we have our space, you are out. It's a beautiful uh, public uh, act. This is the marriage file. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> you have a question or a comment? Yeah. Go ahead. I'm curious about na oh, thank you. Hi. I'm curious about navigating the tension between defending Europe but simultaneously resisting this uh, like imperial universalism. Um, and in that way, is this uh, a defense of this 
void as such. Like when you mentioned Malcolm X, the X is the placeholder for this past. How are we? What, sorry, an explanation. What do you mean by imperial universalism? When you were discussing, I mean, like using having a sort of a charade of universalism that is in fact just from what you were talking about, this more Eurocentric patronizing mm. view. What I see is this tension between um, defense, this provocation yeah. that you made, the defense of yeah. Europe and its its promise, and then um, this condescension of the universal view of Europe, like how to navigate that. Okay, first thing I would say is that uh, the big question is, again, I didn't just try to squeeze out, what do you really mean by universalism? The first lesson of Marx, and it's absolutely crucial and still actual today, you know, Marx is not just a historicist who says every universality is false, it's like human rights appear to be human rights, but in reality are the rights of... Uh, Marx was a good Hegelian, and a good Hegelian means a good formalist. Ma the Marxist idea of human rights is not they are falsely universal, but of course they are. But precisely because of this false form, a certain gap opens up. It's true, it began with human rights which clearly privileged white men of property. But then it started, Mary Wollstonecraft, why not also us, women, blacks in Haiti, workers, prisoners, and so on. So uh, in this opposition between form and content, a true Hegelian and Marxist is never simply at the level of... Uh, at the level of content, like this is just formal democracy. No, forum matters. The second thing I would say is that the key point of Marx is this one, that in today's global market, universality is a fact. We all do live in universality. Let me take an example that I like. Let's say you are a German, haha, merchant, I'm a Chinese. You don't know a shit about my culture, I don't know a shit about your culture. So we negotiate. Of course, from a cultural standpoint, you can say, maybe words meant something totally different to you or me, but at a social level, our exchange was a universal act. And it doesn't, the truth is not in what, how you understood words, exchange money. The truth is that they, you know, for Marx, you, the, the, the universe of commodities is objectively universal. And that's where Marx introduces another crucial Hegelian category, which is the one of uh, universality for itself, which means for Marx, universality is not just I am also universal, but I, in my concrete existence, experience myself as at a distance from all concrete determinations, and so on. Like when Marx says, only in modern capitalist society, a worker becomes a universal worker. Why? Because you experience the fact that you are an, an artisan, farmer, publicity manager, as something ultimately contingent. You are none of that. So we should never also forget this aspect. And here, 
That's why I mentioned also Malcolm X and so on. My argument would be this one. I still remember, I'm unfortunately old enough, the battle for apartheid in South, against apartheid, <laughs> what a Freudian sleep, <laughs> in South Africa. Uh, uh, you know who was for? We blacks should retain our identity. Mutelezi, the Zulu king, who was on the payroll of, of, of the apartheid regime. And, you know, I did some very nasty thing at that point. I got a book, booklet. I bought it in London on Trafalgar Square. There was some embassy or whatever of South Africa, and they were distributed, which defended apartheid. But you know in what terms? Of course, it was hypocrisy, but it was typical. They said, but if we simply give the same rights to Zulus and... Uh, who are those hot and touch Bushmen? But these are wonderful culture with their own authentic worldview. They will all become vulgar people obsessed with, well, you know, like if you read their justification of apartheid, it's just really today, and the greatness of Mandela with all problems that are there is that African National Congress always rejected this, you know, return to authentic roots line. They always insisted on universalism. You're saying two things in this question, that universalism is a fact today. That yeah, everybody looks that's like crucial. Yeah. That Marx gave us the way to say the small gap between the form and yeah. the content, actually, that there's a potential to activate that alienation. That yeah. you actually embrace yeah. that and not yeah. close it in the name of... And Marx. again, Marx was not dreaming, uh, 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 like... Fe modern feminism, which is why, and here I deeply agree with Judith Butler, here we are the same, when I told her that, are you aware that your type of subjectivity, this is why, and I agree with her here, she refuses the term, uh, uh, I'm not a feminist, she says. My idea is this, uh, like that, our sexual identity is plastic, reconstructed through, and I told her, but you are a Cartesian here. Because you, your subject is a kind of a void with infinite ability to reconstruct its identity. And I think this should be the path of whatever you call it, post-feminism. The most dangerous pseudo-feminism for me is the feminism of, but there are some specific uh, feminine identity values. Okay, this has a certain, let's call it, strategic uh, weight. Of course, I follow here Virginia Woolf, you know, how uh, the, strategy, the strategy of feminist struggle should not be only uh, we women should have all the rights or to become what men are, but also that we should change the very ladder or how do you call it, uh, 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 the, the system of values so that jobs which are considered of lesser importance because feminine, all this should be done. But I claim, and that's why I'm Cartesian, Descartes opened, you know, it's so interesting to read here history of philosophy. You know that already in Descartes' time, he was incredibly popular by women. Okay, there is a class dimension by Richard, but they like this, they said, cogito, cogito, doesn't have a sex. It's neutral, we can all, and you know that I quoted in my big fat Hegel book, I forgot the name, there was some Jesuit guy who was the first feminist Cartesian, who already took this line, so it's not just that Descartes was a feminist because the Queen Christina of Sweden and all that stuff. 
there was a genuine, you know, in this idea of emptying subjectivity, of uh, desexualizing even subjectivity, you know, of freeing subjectivity from all this polarity, masculine, feminine, which is why I wonder if you would agree. There is a certain fashion lately in rehabilitating the oppressed feminine side of Christianity, like uh, Da Vinci Code, you know, Ooh, but uh, Jesus was screwing Mary Magdalene, feminine principle. I think this is not the path of feminism. This is a return to traditional hierarchy when you have, you know, masculine and feminine principle, and then as if by chance, Masculine principle is active, feminine principle is passive. Masculine principle is light, feminine principle is darkness, and so on. That's why I never agreed with all respect with your Vice President Al Gore, who is unfortunately one of these among the gang of people who claim Descartes is the origin of evil. My only great appreciation of uh, Al Gore, after losing that Florida staff election, no? He did something wonderful. I have a friend who was in one of his... You know how he for some time presented himself? I'm the guy who once was the future president of the United States. <laughs> it's, I can develop the whole theory of Hegelian temporality here. Yeah. I think we can take one more question. Um, there was one in the front here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But I noticed that typically you prefer the right side. <laughs> this is noted by Soli. <laughs> You want to take the microphone, please? Yeah, please. Or come here, my God. <laughs> no, uh, I'm hypocritical. I offered you because yeah. I know you, you will not. <laughs> yes, Mr. Klein, yes. Yeah. First, like, first, I will tell you, like, I, you have to know my position. Like, I am like a big fan of like uh, Sergei Farajanov, who actually from whom? Sergei Farajanov. Farajanov. Ah, the director. Yes. Yeah. Because he believed, uh, he believed like uh, universality, and he believed like every culture, every language every identity has a right in like a major uh, one big uh, cover, one big like a place in the world. But are all the same? Because everyone, even Hitler would have agreed with that. Right, integration. Yeah. And uh, you said, you know, like for example, like uh, we should, uh, we should keep distance and we should uh, remain like a stationary dynamism with like, for example, like inside Europe with immigrants. Don't you think uh, for if we uh, alienate, for example, inside the European society, immigrants, uh, and for example, like Europeans, yeah. is going to like uh, keep, like maybe create a ground for more radicalization, and you have grounds for like I call like a Dostoevsky's religious nationalism. I see your point. It's a very good question. But let me tell you what I meant. Maybe again, I agree. I was so much caught in these stupid jokes and improvising. I wasn't clear enough. I am not saying we should eat withdraw into our particular identity. What I'm saying is that we should not change this urge to know the other into a kind of what in psychoanalysis we call superego, iberich injunction, like, oh, you know, this is what bothers me in political correctness. You have this infinite guilt, like, for example, I use the word black. 
but should I use the word African-American? But then, my God, what if they are not from Africa and so on, you know? And there is such a pleasure with, politi with politically correct film to discover, no, I was still guilty. Oh, my God, you know, I was still, oh, no, no, no. I think that there is, no, it's not that let's just be racist. But I think there is something profoundly false in this eternal self culpabilization and I will tell you at what level. I, uh, and it will be also the answer to your other point. Did you notice how I noted this hypocrisy of some multicultural white liberals who you have a certain hierarchy. People who are far away, they have the full right to assert their specific cultural identity. If Native Americans do it, yuhuhu, perfect. Blacks, yes, okay. Then, you know, Italians, so-so. Germans, eh, eh, eh. If I'm an uh, wasp, white Anglo-Saxon, and say we need to protect our culture, I am a fascist, practically, and so on. Now, I am not saying that this is not true. I'm not a total idiot. Because of relations of power and so on, of course, it's not the same for me to say it or for Native American or black. But what I'm, I noticed is that there is an implicit racism in it, in this sense that, like, those others further from us are allowed to assert their particular identity and we are not. But this self-humiliation is a false one. At the same time, it privileges us as the only truly universal ones, you know. I don't have the right to assert my white culture. Why? Because I'm really universal, above it all. Let me and take you back to this question here, very specific question. Does the kind of acceptance of refugees into Europe ultimately it becomes a breeding ground for radicalism. No, no, Paraphrase no, your question. I, I so rephrase your question about <laughs> their radical. Opposite, you know, that. So ask it again. My, my question was the opposite. Like, uh, you said like, uh, we should maintain like, uh, distance. You know, we should like, uh, keep like... Uh, no, I would rather say we should not feel guilty about the distance. Like, mm. emig yes. Emigrants, and we should have like, our own European mentality and let them their own. But my question is like, uh, if you make like a... Uh, distinguish between yeah. them and make like a uh, borders and lines yeah. between us and them yeah. because the Europeans and yeah, yeah. like don't you like a promote like a more radicalization, right. more segregation inside the European society because they become part of like a European society, part of Europe. Okay, my counterpoint would be here. I fear much more a kind of a enforce universalization in the sense of that we are all part of some great spiritual unity because when you look closely at that unity you will see that it secretly always privileges uh, privileges uh, some part of it you know that's uh, that's my problem and again uh, my point is not uh, let's keep let's keep a distance. My point is this one. Now we come finally, after all the, to the properly philosophical point. It's although I'm a materialist, but I define myself as a materialist Christian. I don't have time to buy my next book to explain. But uh, crucial here is the notion of neighbor. You know that the Judeo-Christian, Judeo and also in Islam, you find trace notion of neighbor. 
is something extremely interesting. If you read it closely, neighbor is not simply a fellow man, the one who is like me. Neighbor is precisely the other in its monstrous abyss. Already Freud knew this clearly. Let me give an example which is my favorite. Did you see the movie and read the novel? I only saw the movie, the novel is too long, but blah, blah. Uh, 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 Stephen King and uh, Kubrick uh, uh, Shining. The hero, it's the story of how a fellow man becomes a neighbor. It begins with a happy family, father, one of us, and slowly the father turns a murderer monster. And Stephen King was right when he said it was the big mistake to hire Jack Nicholson to play the hero. Why? Because the whole point of the novel is that at the beginning he is the kindest father. Slowly, slowly, but you know, like, the second Jack Nicholson appears <laughs> on screen, <laughs> you know. No, but you know what I mean? Uh, this is why, as even Levinas, with whom otherwise I don't often agree, says very nicely that if you read properly the Ten Commandments, they are really offer a protection against the neighbor. The point is how to keep the neighbor at a distance. And I will even go to love here. Was it Rilke or who? Who said that in true love, yes. true love is, and but you put this nicely, true love, and speaking and about men, 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 woman, whatever, couple, is uh, the strongest assertion of difference of the two. True love is not Tristan and Isolde and that bullshit, we become one in the eternal no, night. He actually says you have to stand guard over each other's solitude. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what, I'm, that's, that's what I yeah. meant by it. To guard, to guard the other solitude. Guard your personal, to guard the other solitude, yeah. Yeah, you may yeah but, but uh, yeah, no, okay, I'm a little sorry. bit more radical because I don't think you or I no, here I'm a Freudian. No, what is my personal space? I, I think we are enigmas for ourselves. I'm sorry, let, let's, we're going to continue. No, no, but I'm very sad because, we, but speaking about Paradiano, I like him. The, uh, you know whom I don't like? No, uh, Tarkovsky, so, so, Sokorov. Uh. There I have a problem. I, uh, I, I want to say, uh, since you talked about this earlier, you know, uh, there are a lot of great nights to have. This was a really special night. I had a huge amount of... Uh, my God, you are, we learned a lot. Like, you talk now like in pornography. A passionate <laughs> night of whatever. I my gratitude, <laughs> yeah. and I hope you will not decline when we all say thank you to you, and we're going to continue with wine and water uh, upstairs, and I really want to thank ah, you. So, uh, I know why you said yes. this, because I said at the beginning that they don't drink wine, so it's wine water, for you, water, water for me. Thanks for your hospitality. <laughs>